Welcome back, everyone, to episode 57 of the Anagram Journey podcast with Suzanne Stabile. Today's guest is Anagram 4, Emily P. Freeman. Hopefully you heard her on her podcast, The Next Right Thing. And if you don't have the book, The Next Right Thing, you need to go ahead and get it because this episode almost serves as a companion to go with it. Suzanne and Emily talk about several of the chapters and why they're named what they're named. Of course, they talk about discernment. What is episodic meaning? Do you tell your story as the victim and as the victor? And what is the question you should ask yourself before every hard decision? The plug for today's podcast is a great one. For the rest of May, go to lifeinthetrinityministry.com and get a copy of The Path Between Us for only $15, and it will come with a copy of The Path Between Us Study Guide. So when you're on vacation with your family, going on trips with your friends, whatever it may be, or just at home with some free time, uh, you and your friends or loved ones or family can work through the Path Between Us Study Guide. Uh, I've done it with three different groups, and each time was incredible. I loved it. So, lifeinthetrinityministry.com for the rest of the month of May, the Path Between Us book and the study guide for $15. Hope you enjoyed the episode. It's an incredible one. Hi. It's nice to meet you. It's so nice to meet you, too. And... I love this book. Thank you. So I'm very anxious for us to get to talk about it because I love it so much because I don't know where you got the next right thing, but I picked that up somewhere um, maybe six or seven years ago Mm -hmm. and started talking about doing the next right thing along with my thing, which is what is mine to do. Yes. And because I got what is mine to do and already kind of had that pattern going for me before I heard the next right thing, I never put all the work around the next right thing. Hmm. And you've done that for me. Oh, good. (laughs) I'm so (laughs) grateful. And discernment is everybody's question. Mm, Yeah. You know, my husband's a pastor and a former Roman Catholic priest and when we teach together, discernment is the question. It's always the question. How do I know yeah. what I'm to do? How do I know what God's calling me to do? Like all of that. So yeah. for us to kind of get started in our conversation, I'd love for you to just talk about the book, uh, the process, discernment for you. And then as you talk for a while, then I'll dial in at some point with, uh, asking you some questions. That sounds great. I want to hear about you and I want to hear about you deciding to write or being called to write the book. Mm -hmm. And I want to hear about the way you use discernment on a daily basis in terms of the next right thing. So uh, let me start with uh, something that you said early in the book, because I think it's the, the place for you to, um, start teaching, which I hope this will be for everybody. And that is, you say, it doesn't matter what the specific decision is. Unmade decisions hold power. Would you talk about that for a little bit? 
When I pay attention to the ways I pay attention, which I feel like I've now made my job as a writer to pay attention to what I'm paying attention to, right. and then I write my way through it. What I realized is um, when I have a decision to make, it's the bigger the decision or the more difficult the decision, the more power that decision has until I make it. And so what I've discovered in that process is um, that I can get on my own nerves with how much I want to talk about it, how much it consumes my thoughts. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I will lose sleep. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I will, um, I'll go around in circles. I'll talk myself into something and then out of something. And then I'm back to where I started. And it is so annoying <laughs> for me. And then I feel like, oh, I'm probably annoying everybody around me too. Why can't I just make this decision? And then I start to pass judgment on myself for not being a person who can make a decisive choice. Right. Um, so that's all of that right there. That's a lot of power for an unmade decision to have over my life. And so it was during a period of time for me when I was trying to make the choice. Most recently, I was trying to make the choice whether or not I wanted to go to grad school. Mm -hmm. And decision for me that began to change, not just me thinking about the decision, but me thinking about how I think about decisions. There you go. And I realized, wow, this process is uh, an important process. Mm -hmm. And it's something that can... If I let it, it can be a great teacher for me and also an important part of my own spiritual formation. And so that's sort of when I've been started digging into and writing down and, and almost taking notes on my own life and the way that I was making or not making the decision and recognizing, um, oh, there's something here that's bigger than the decision and more important than, than the decision it's really about me becoming, it's about who I'm becoming in right. this decision-making process. Okay. Well, I wanted us to hold the Enneagram till a little bit later, but we're not going to get to do that. So, because <laughs> I, I have some things I want to say. So, but I'd like for you to tell everybody what your Enneagram number is and how long you've known and, you know, some of that. At, and then I want us to apply that to this opening comment from you. So I identify, uh, with the type four on the Enneagram. And, um, I, I have prop, I'm trying to trace back, you know, the, the Enneagram itself is sort of mysterious. So is my discovery of it. I can't remember. <laughs> that fits exactly. perfectly. It, it is. It feels right. Um, I, I, but I know it's been longer than five years ago. Um, and I do remember going to meet with a spiritual director for the first time and, and meeting with her. I already knew that I, I was already familiar with the Enneagram and I think a meeting with her helped me learn a little bit more about it mm -hmm. in that process. And that was a little over five years ago. So, yeah. um, but I knew, I, I think the thing about the four that helped me know, yeah, that's me is how deeply we want to be understood, how important it is for me personally. Um, Cause I, I just thought everybody wanted to, I thought that was a deep need of everyone. Doesn't everybody want to be, and maybe we do, but there was something about the description and the ways that I was interacting with the description of the four that made me realize like, Oh no, this is uniquely so important to me. If you, if you, if you disagree with me, that's fine. As long as I know that you understand right. why you did what it is that you're disagreeing with the right thing. 
and not right, just so, that you misunderstand. Yes, exactly. So um, I want to put a little uh, uh, groundwork around that for you and I to refer back to, but for listeners in case they've not heard a lot about fours and they're listening so that they can uh, understand about the next right thing. My language and teaching includes the reality that there are fewer fours than any other number. There are Enneagram master teachers who've been teaching for a long, long time who think Enneagram numbers are pretty evenly distributed across the nine numbers in terms of the global population. But my tradition believes there are more sixes than any other number and fewer fours. And um, my life experience tells me that there are more sixes and fewer fours. And I think that the great desire of every four I've ever met is to be seen, heard, understood, and maybe known in some way. And I think that's the thing they don't experience very often. And coupled with that in relationship to your practice for making decisions is that four's orientation to time is the past. And they do a lot of, if only that hadn't happened, if only I'd made a different decision. So while I think your gift in my world is going to be a gift for everybody, I do think that fours are going to find themselves in your writing in a way that will speak to them that other people will get, but not on the level that they get it. Mm. And for that, I'm very, very thankful for your work because most fours don't write about everyday practical things. So you have put a great gift out in the world in terms of Enneagram wisdom, as far as I'm concerned, without maybe that ever being a point or important for you. And I think it's going to be a real game changer for some people who are reading you and thinking, that's what I think. That's what I would say. That's how I would say that. Right? Yeah. So would you say that your desire to make good decisions, and I don't want you to say it if it's not true, but would you say that that has come in part because of regretting decisions that you made in the past? <laughs> I would say, and I've had this conversation with someone recently, um, Luke Norsworthy, I think you've had him on recently. Yeah, well, Luke and I are great buddies, yeah. Okay, so he and I talked about how I will often make decisions based off of what I think I will, something I will not regret later. So I'll think about, will I regret this choice later? And it can be as simple as a restaurant order, you know, a menu order. I want to order the thing that I will have the least regrets about, which is when you think about it, kind of a gloomy way to live <laughs> your life. But that is something I can definitely relate with. And I wouldn't say I have made a lot of choices in my life that I have regretted, but I will say I have had a lot of fear in my life of regretting choices. There you go. And that has sometimes kept me from making choices right. because I don't want to choose something I will later regret. So my way of teaching the Enneagram is that your Enneagram number is determined uh, by how you see, not by mm -hmm. what you do. 
and that you can never change what you see. You can only change what you do with how you see. So uh, fours focus on flaws first when they're presented with a new idea. Yes. Is I that your experience? Definitely. Doesn't everyone? That's what I want to say. No, no, everyone. No, no, I'm sorry. But there are, there are these numbers <laughs> who see only goodness down the road and I think it's going to be smooth sailing all the way. <laughs> and I think when you focus on flaws first, because that's how you see over the years, you know, I've been teaching for 25 years and over the years, people fours tell me, that the reason they focus on the flaws first is because they don't want to be disappointed later. Yeah. And my question for you would be, does that mean you don't want to be disappointed in you or in the decision? I would say uh, those two things are so closely related that I don't know I could separate. There you go. That's exactly the answer I wanted you to give me. <laughs> Because for you, the decisions you make are you. They're, yes. not, they're not over here. They're no. not a, a thing you thought about and did and it didn't work out and it doesn't matter. They are a, a big part of you. So that makes your way of approaching a book that I would say is all about discernment, a really thoughtful, detail-oriented, slow walk through discernment. And people are looking for a fast way to discern what they need to do. Yes, that is true. In the book, you say, um, maybe you're addicted to clarity and certitude, wanting to be absolutely sure of all the details before moving forward. Maybe you value approval above all, wanting to seek everyone else's perspective before understanding your own, accounting for a lack of confidence and a chronic case of hesitation. That it, it, for you, if you have your book is all right, there's all on page 13. The thing that I want to tip my hat to is I don't know how much Enneagram work you've done, but you are walking through Enneagram numbers right there. Hmm. And I want to point that out to the listeners, to my listeners, because they're going to find themselves in how you ask questions. Hmm. How did you get to a point where you were looking at discernment for every number on the Enneagram? I could mark place after place in the book and just put eight, seven, four, one, nine, three. <laughs> right. And I'm guessing you didn't do that intentionally. No, I didn't do that intentionally. I didn't, but I have, I have, I have read a lot about the Enneagram, learned a lot from you about about the Enneagram, but, and so I'm sure that comes out without, you know, subconsciously, um, and to listening to the questions that people ask me in response to the next right thing podcast or things that I'll put on social media, there are people from all different numbers, you know, from all different perspectives and sure. generally all those questions, you know, one way or the other, they all get covered. And so that's kind of what you know, where my responses would come from. So I'd love to hear you talk about for all the listeners, for the difference in the next right thing and whether or not to go to graduate school and the next right thing about what to do this afternoon. Well, that's a great question. 
And I would say that there would have been a time when I may have weighed those really differently. Um, but the gift of the next right thing is that uh, it takes the same amount of effort in, in my actual life to consider what to do this afternoon if I let it as it does to consider whether or not to go to grad school. Because nobody, when it comes to a big decision like schooling or a, a, a vocational decision or a decision about, you know, moving or whatever, nobody has, it has the decision presented to us and then we have to make it that afternoon. It, it's always we always have this opportunity. We have a little bit of time. We have some space to look for arrows rather than demanding answers. And those arrows are simply pointing to our very next right thing. We can only do one thing at a time anyway, as much as we like to think that we are these amazing multitaskers. Mm -hmm. um, the truth is the attention and care we can give something is really just one thing at a time. And so next right thing living is really just cooperating with the way we're designed to live, which is in this moment. Um, and so when it comes to thinking about what I'm going to do this afternoon versus thinking about a big decision like graduate school, um, I can still invite my friend Jesus with me into that decision in the same way, either way, and just do one next right thing. And with a graduate school, granted, it's uh it's one next right thing that I know is going to be the beginning of many next right things because it's a bigger decision, but I still only have one thing I can do at a time. And that helps me personally relieve the anxiety of the pressure of making the, the right choice. Because for me, the, the, the magic is not necessarily in the word, right. It's really in the word next. And sometimes I think we globally, we all, we want to do the right thing. Um, but sometimes we're not, we're just not sure what the right thing is, but the next thing is friendly and accessible to me because it's just right here and today. It's not way off in the distance. And so, uh, learning to ask myself, okay, but what is just the next right thing? That's been such a life-saving question for me. When you look back before having this lined out for yourself, did you have significantly more regret about choices than you do now? Or would you say it's about the same? I would, that's a good question. And I might have to think about it. Here's what I will say. I am learning to respect my own process and more than I used to. So if I am moving into a decision and, um, like in work, let's say, if I'm being asked to do something that doesn't feel like it jives with who I am or what I value, uh, you know, in the past, I would shame myself for that and think, Emily, this is just how it's done. This is, you just, why are you feeling all kind of ways about it? You just need to do the thing because that's the job. And now, and, and then I might've done the thing and then I would have regretted it mm -hmm. because I hadn't listen to my inner voice. Mm -hmm. Now I'm recognizing this practice of doing the next right thing. And also the gift of the Enneagram of recognizing that part of my motivation in, in decision-making is I want my decisions to reflect what I value. And that's of importance to me. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, there are times when that's not always 100% possible. So we just do the best that we can, but I'm learning to pause and recognize the feel, I see the world really first through feeling. And I, I can, I mean, if, if I have a decision to make, I can feel it right away. Now I don't know, 
I'm not going to make it right then. And I don't, I can't even put English words to it necessarily, but I will either have a lift or a sink or a color or a, there's something that is, that happens instantly that I would relate with a feeling, a joy, a sorrow, a grief, a confusion, a passion. There's something uh, feeling always happening <laughs> with me. But, and I used to think like, well, we're not supposed to pay attention to our feelings. It's only the facts. And I think I spent a lot of time growing up um, maybe shaming myself for all the feeling and thinking I just need to be more logical. Um, but I'm learning that the feelings, um, though they don't tell the whole story, they do still give me important information and I can use that information in the discernment process without shaming myself for having all the feelings. And so I think that's something I'm learning to accept a little bit more. It's so, I'm so thankful for every word you just said, because fours are going to hear that and that's their language. It's like you are speaking to a tribe of people who feel first. Yeah. Right. So I also, as a two, I feel first, but I feel the other person's feelings. And oh, wow. you, yeah. Right. And you feel texture and color. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I keep trying to teach that to fours. And I keep trying <laughs> to teach that about fours. But that's very hard to teach unless it comes from somebody like you talking about it organically and saying, this yes. is what happens for me. I'll have a feeling or a color or a, an, you know, it's like all, it could present itself to me in all of these different ways. Yes. And then right. I know kind of where we're going. And for <laughs> other numbers on the Enneagram, that makes absolutely no sense to them, right? They it don't. sounds craziness, right? Yeah. But it's not craziness. It is based on how you see and not yeah. on craziness. I feel like uh, and think that the way you wrote the book is um, not for in that you laid it out in a way that everybody who reads the next right thing can literally use the chapter titles to carry in their pocket to remind themselves of what the process is. Was that intentional, I presume? It was. I want, I really did want those chapter titles to have action in them. And that if not, if, if someone only read the table of contents, they could take a little bit away from it. And that was intentional. That's right. And so um, I'm, I'm going to read a few of them if it's all right with you. And then I'd like for you just to talk to those points. Mm -hmm. And I can't, you know, I can't do 24. <laughs> but, but I also want to say to people who haven't ever written a book, when they ask you for the chapter titles, that's one of the hardest questions the publisher asks for, right? Yeah, that's like, true. I, yes. I, I, and I don't know what your experience is, but with the path between us, I sent in the chapter titles and they said, that's not exactly what we had in mind. <laughs> like, why don't you tell me what you have? In mind? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you give me a place to start and I'll fix it. And they said, no, 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 right. we're going to do that the other way around. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but what happens, I think, when people read a book like The Next Right Thing is they finish the book and they say, I want to do that. Mm. And so I'm telling you, listeners, read it. Read the book. And that usual feeling that you have at the end of a book where you say, I want to do that, but there's no way. Your place to start, and you need to correct me now. It, you really need to correct me, Emily, if I'm wrong. 
But I think the first place you start is you get an index card and write down the chapter titles. Yeah, I love it. Do it. Then you start using that as a guide for how am I going to make this decision? Yes. So are you all right if for part of the podcast, I just pull out a few and you teach? Sure. Okay, great. So I'd like to start with uh, chapter three. For everybody listening, it's do the right thing. Do the next right thing is number one. Become a soul minimalist. Oh, I love that work so much. Number two. Number three, name the narrative. I'd like to hear you talk about that for a little bit. So there was a story that I watched on the news about Nancy Wrightball, and she was the American uh, medical missionary who survived Ebola. And when she came back to the States and got better, they were doing a news conference, and I was infinitely fascinated with her story. So she and her husband were telling their story. He spoke first. She spoke a little bit. They talked about the hardships and the joy and the the difficulties and the close calls. And at the end, uh, the medical, the correspondent, I think she was a CNN reporter. She said um, about how beautiful their story was, how grateful she was for it. And then she said um, they had a difficult time, but theirs was a narrative of joy. Mm -hmm. And I was on the treadmill at the gym when I heard that. And I had to stop the treadmill and write down what she said to the point that later, I think it was Elizabeth Cohen. Later, I had to look it up, the transcript, because that phrase, theirs was a narrative of joy, was so powerful to me. And I thought about how interesting it was that the right balls, the, every moment of their experience of, re, of contracting and recovering from Ebola was not joyful. But the narrative was one of joy. And I think that that couple would agree with that. And you could see it all over their faces. And so when I think about my own life, my own decisions and choices, and I think a lot of times we tend to name the wrong thing. And we we name our narrative based upon, instead of the whole narrative, we base it on the plot points. So within the, the, looking at the right bulls there, the plot points there, there was some difficult ones, sorrow, grief, fear, anxiety. Those were plot points, but the narrative arc was one of joy. And so when I think about my life and I think about what is the narrative of my life? um, And I don't want to confuse that with plot points. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to making decisions, um, it's important to understand what the narrative I'm telling myself, true or false on the level of my soul and my inner life, what is the narrative here that's happening beneath the surface? Um, because sometimes I think we make decisions based off of things, based off of narratives that we don't even realize we're telling ourselves underneath. Absolutely. And so then we're just moving through life on autopilot, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even responding to things that we don't realize are stories that are being woven beneath the surface and informing our choices. And if we don't take the time to name those narratives and maybe, maybe, uh, name them for what they are, grief, fear, excitement. Sometimes if I, sometimes I will pass judgment on my feelings and then I'm, then I won't allow it to come to the surface. So I think, Oh, I shouldn't feel sad about this. Right. Therefore I won't name that narrative. And then I'm making choices based off of feeling fake, not sad when really I'm, I am sad. Right. It's important to know. Well, and for you as a four, it's very difficult to know the difference between sad and melancholy at times. Sure. Because melancholy is comfortable for you and sad's a different thing, yes, right? Yes, true. So in my teaching, what you call plot points, I would call episodic meaning. Oh. And, and what I say is that there are a lot of people who are living their lives based on merely episodic meaning with no 
overarching story that they're aware of that they're living in. They just move from episode to episode to episode to episode. And then what happens when, I think, when you have episodic meaning and you're moving from one episode to another, then if there's no episode, then it feels like your life doesn't have any meaning. Mm. Is there a connection between that and how you think about plot points for you? Or is that just merely a connection that I'm making? No, I think that's a beautiful connection. And it, it, it makes sense too, because if you get stuck in a, in a plot point that is dark or difficult and there is no overarching narrative, Mm -hmm. um, that's a really hard place to stay stuck. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about you and Luke for a minute, because um, Luke is a seven on the Enneagram and you're a four. Mm -hmm. And so in many ways you're considered to be opposites. And one of the practices that I put out in the world is that it's possible for you to tell your story with you as the victim and then for you to immediately turn around and tell your story again with you as the victor, that you're both victim and victor in both, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But you as a four would have an average tendency to tell your story as the victim and Luke as a seven in average space would tell his story with him as the victor. Mm -hmm. How do you think that kind of seeing based on Enneagram wisdom affects or doesn't affect if it doesn't your um, somewhat, but not in a limiting way, linear view of discernment? I think if in average space, which is where all of us spend an awful lot of time, I think this is where you two, as a four and a seven, are very much alike and very different, and you each contain what the other needs. Hmm. So when I've talked to Luke enough, I feel comfortable speaking about him. When Luke discerns, he discerns from a place of optimism. Yes. And when fours discern who are in average space, they discern not from a place of pessimism, but from an awareness of things don't generally work out like I think they're going to. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is, which is one place where that conversation about regret comes back in. Right. Because when I talk to a seven about regret, their face goes blank. And they're like, regret what? There are, there's no such thing as regret. We don't look back. We look forward. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm, my looking forward is considering future regret. Right. Which is crazy, but not because that's sort of the way that I, that's, that makes sense to me. But to a seven, it sounds crazy because it's like, why would you, we don't live in the past. Yeah, but I don't think it's crazy at all. Uh, like I think it is uh, actually inclusive of all nine numbers. Hmm. It just serves a different role for each of the nine numbers to be methodical and far reaching in your desire to make a decision that you're going to feel good about next week and week after next and the week after that. And it's very interesting that you as a four try to make decisions where you don't have regrets because you're better equipped to handle regrets than any other number on the Enneagram, right? Yes. In fact, this sounds a little bit, um, odd to say this out loud to admit it, but there are times when I'm, I have a, a strange comfort. It's a strange comfort when things go wrong. Absolutely. Because I know how to do that. 
And then I, and then I can work my way through and I feel like myself when I'm dealing with disappointment. Yeah. I wish everybody could see the look on your face, but let me tell you, (laughs) (laughs) only I get to, but that's, that's gold for Enneagram fours to hear because every one of them went, yes, that's it. Exactly. Being a little bit disappointed, things not quite working out, feeling melancholy about that or sad. That's where I live. Yes. I live right there in that space. One woman came up to me this last weekend. I was teaching in St. Louis and a woman came up to me and said, I know you don't think we should uh, type children or give numbers to children. I said, I absolutely do not. I don't, don't believe in that. And she said, well, I, I know, but I want to tell you this story anyway. And I said, okay. And she said, we think our child is a four on the Enneagram because I can't remember if it was a boy or a girl. I think it was a little boy. She said, because he said to us, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and feel sad because it makes me so happy when I feel sad. (laughs) That is the most sensical statement I have heard in a long time. (laughs) Isn't it great? It's like, oh, I want some of that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) This other is so boring. No texture. So boring. Oh, that's good. All right. Are you okay if I pick another chapter title? Yes, ma'am. I love this. I wish we had time for me to pick all of them. Uh, do you want to pick one? No, or you don't let me. You gonna let I'm me? Gonna do, let it? You do it. All right. I really like uh, chapter six. Be a beginner. Oh, be a beginner. We are in love with new beginnings, but we do not like being beginners. So well said. You know, people when they hear this podcast, I can tell you right now, people when they hear this podcast are going to um, hit pause and write down stuff. They should just get the book and then they don't have to write it down themselves. <laughs> they do. Well, I'm going to push the book, of course. <laughs> but it is true. I think that idea of, I mean, we, it's built into our culture, into our um, it, human experience. Happy New Year. Uh, Easter is a new time. Spring, you know, is a, you know, new you, new year, new you. And then spring, the newness of spring and the newness of a new baby and the starting over and mm-hmm. hope's going to come. Joy's going to come in the morning. We love these starting overs, um, but we don't so much like starting again and, you know, st- starting over all over again, like from the right. very beginning. And so when I show up as a beginner in different spaces in my life, whether that be I'm a new mom or I am a new stepmom, or I am newly widowed, or I have to start a new job where I'm, I don't really know what's going on. Um, that is, it's like we learn, we learn the joy of beginning, but we've, it's almost like we have to stumble our way through being a beginner and it's tough and we, it's not glorified. It's just a, uh, it's a space where it's like nobody can teach us the posture of being a beginner, but sometimes the most beautiful next right thing we can do is embrace that space of being a beginner because there will come a time when you're not a beginner in this anymore. And so let being a beginner teach you what it has to teach you while it's still here and recognize that this, it will not always be this way. Right. And I, I responded to the chapter from my two space with I'm kind of about change our new beginnings, but it has to be my idea. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I don't want to, I, I, it's like, ah, oh, man, I don't want to do this. Or, or then I start off kind of from a negative space of I'll make the same mistakes I made last time. Mm. 
right? So then my work in reading your book was to go back and name the narrative again. Yes. Which taught me another thing about the way you put the book together so that I could work a few of these steps and think, oh, no, 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 I got to go back and work on that one a little bit more before I'm really ready to do this one in the way perhaps that I would like to do it. All right. Tell everybody what asked this question before every hard decision. You know, they ask a thousand questions, but there's this magical question. Tell them what it is. This question is one that was asked of me when I was trying to make a tough choice, whether or not it, it wasn't a tough choice to some people, but for me, it was a tough choice. Uh-huh. And that was to travel uh, with Compassion International to the Philippines. Okay. I had little kids at the time and I wasn't sure what to do. I couldn't find my yes. I couldn't find my no. And I was going back and forth, back and forth. Um, but one, one of the narratives, sp- talking about naming the narratives that, that was going on in my mind was two things. I was, af- I was afraid of uh, foreign travel, meaning the airplane piece, like going from the East Coast of the United States all the way over to uh, uh, Southeast Asia. That was the one thing I had a, a fear of that flight. I also had a fear of getting sick in a foreign country, which sounds very trite, but I've talked with enough people to know that is a thing a lot of people are afraid of. Right. And that narrative of fear was weaving its way slowly and silently uh, through this decision in a way that I didn't even realize. So, but I talked to the trip leader and I told him, I'm like, I don't know what to do. Yes, no, I'm not sure. And he asked me the question, the question that I think is important to ask yourself before every hard decision. And he said, Emily, there might be a lot of reasons for you to say no to this trip, but please don't let fear be one of them. And so that question for me now has become, and I don't wait so long to ask it anymore, is am I being pushed by fear or am I being led by love? And that's the one question now that I'm learning to ask myself first before every hard decision. And sometimes that's the only question I have to ask and I know what to do. All right. Now I want to know if you wordsmithed, pushed by fear and led by love. Or if that automatically came to you, lead and push are the two words that I'm focused on. It's hmm. a good question. I don't even remember. Because those two things are so different. Yes. And I do think fear pushes us. We it, feel yes. like we have to respond to fear. It's a bully. Yes. It feels like being pushed around. Exactly. And being led is a completely different thing. Yes. Yeah. There's a partnership in being led uh, that love invites us into. And so there is that, uh, that it's a different posture than being pushed. Yeah. Yep. All right. Um, I'm having a very good time. I hope you are. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. All right. (laughs) I want to talk about uh, eight. I know that we're not just skipping through here, but I want to talk about eight because what you want more You know, knowing what I want more has kept me from making a lot of mistakes Hmm. when I thought I wanted everything. Because when I think I want everything, then I think I can do everything. I think I can have everything. Like, you know, when I think I want to do all of these things and take care of all of these people, and then I think I can. And unless I do the work of knowing which I want the most, I don't ever look at knowing which one I, I couldn't do anyway. Right. Right. Do you find that to be, my husband is a two, so it's all, it's a gift to hear you talk about your experience as a two. Do you find that to be so difficult to discern what you want more? 
Yes. And I, I'll tell you why we can't discern. So this is for, what's your husband's name? I can't remember. It's John. Yeah. So here, this is for John. This is about John and me. And I hope it's good for him and good for you. Twos are in the feeling triad with you. And if I differentiate the feelings for twos, threes, and fours when I'm teaching them, what we have is this reality. Fours want to exacerbate feelings. So if they're sad, they want to be sadder. And if they're happy, they want to be happier. It's like, why have an average feeling? Everybody can do What's that. What's the point of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't do anything for me, average. Threes uh, take in information with feelings, but they don't use feelings to make sense of the information they've taken in. So they're reading the room, but then they're not feeling. They're thinking and doing. Twos, who to all the world, it looks like we are the feeling folk on the Enneagram, and we are. But the feelings we feel are very seldom our own. Mm. Instead, we pick up on all the feelings that the people around us have or that the people that we love have. And then we try to discern somehow what we want or need while feeling the feelings of other people because we can't name our own. It is the hardest question anybody ever asks me. What do you need? And what are you feeling? Because they're very scary, very scary questions. And people who are twos, uh, and I don't have any idea what John's story is, but people who are twos can go back and look at the narrative. And the narrative for me as a two was that I was afraid to ask for what I needed because that equaled rejection. And most twos will tell you the same thing. Hmm. That the story they told themselves then is determining the story they tell themselves now. How do you think your pattern of discernment gets around that? I know how I think it does, but I think it'll take me more words to say than you. <laughs> gets say that question again. Well, I, I sometimes am only discerning based on how it went last time. Right. All my discernment. The next right thing is either the opposite of what I did last time because it didn't work. Right. right? Which mm. is not discernment at all. It's mm. certainly couldn't call itself the next right thing. It's just an opposite thing. Yeah. And so how do, how are you overall in the book saying, I'm, I'm taking all my history and the present and my concern about the future and I'm doing the next right thing in the context of all of that instead of the way we would do it in terms of where our orientation to time goes in terms of stances, sure. right? Sure, right. I think the gift of the question is what is my next right thing um, comes when it can detach us from future or past because it keeps me in the present. Okay, that's it. Bingo. Talk about that more and more. Well, and like you said, I have this leaning towards, like for me, it's, it's towards looking back. And, and that's why I think I have found a way to um, bring the practice of reflection into the present because I've, I've come, I, I have engaged in a regular practice of reflection because I do think a great teacher for future decisions, it can be past decisions mm -hmm. um, and reflecting on what worked before, what didn't in a healthy way. What was life giving? What was life draining? Uh, where did I see God? Where did I see myself show up most fully at the table? Um, but with all that information, I can now ask myself in this moment with what is alive within me, 
and with with what is with what is true of myself and my family situation right now, what is the next right thing for now? And that keeps me a growing, uh, living human in the moment because my I might ask myself that question next Tuesday, and my answer might be really different. Mm-hmm. But that is it's such a lovely. Um, because it doesn't come natural for me to ask myself the next right thing. No that's feelings. Why, right. That's why this is so, that's why this is helpful for me. And in fact, I've, you know, in my relationship with that, the one space, um, this next right thing question f- for me brings me into, I feel like my most healthy space mm-hmm. um, because it's an action question. Whereas my orientation tends to want to act and do last. Right. That's my last, my last instinct is, I want to feel something. I want to think about how I feel about the thing. And the last thing I want to do is make an action because I can't take that back. Um, so this question for me in some ways is really counterintuitive because it's asking me to move into something, but being a person who pays a lot of attention to my inner life, mm-hmm. my outer life and how they talk to each other, I can sometimes get stuck in the middle of the room with all the choices and all the decisions and I don't want to make the wrong one and blah, 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 and I'm spinning and I can get stuck there. And so the next right thing question is like my off ramp from the highway of craziness of spinning. Mm-hmm. And I can say, okay, well, you know what? We, you can, you can only do one thing at a time. So let's let it be this. What is your mm-hmm. next right thing? Mm-hmm. And then two minutes later, I can ask myself that again. And I, and I want to point out too, that that question is not necessarily going to lead to a bright light in the sky answer. Sometimes your next thing is to take a shower. Sometimes it's to wait till tomorrow. Sometimes it's just pick the kids up from school. It doesn't, it's rarely uh, the answer. I put that in quotes. Like it's rarely this giant thing, but it, but it always will lead to answers, Mm -hmm. but it might take time. And so that idea of, um, I think we can, we can, long for clarity, but sometimes for me, I can get stuck in waiting for clarity and thinking I have to wait till I have peace and I have to wait for clarity. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the clarity often comes from engagement. The peace comes after I move. And, but if I don't, if I'm not willing to do my next right thing, then I'm waiting for a peace that, that won't come yet because it's waiting for me to engage with it. If that makes any sense. It makes perfect sense. So um, for a while now, I've been quoting E.L. Doctorow talking about writing. I don't know if you've ever read him, but he's a, a novelist who um, does very detailed, deep work. You would like it. As a four, you would like his work. And in talking about writing, he says, uh, writing is like being on a long journey on a very dark road at night. You can only see as far as the headlights, but you can make the whole journey that way. Yes. And I've copted that to say a spiritual journey is that way. And you can only see as far as the headlights, but you can make the whole journey that way. And you're saying the same thing that you, the next right thing isn't the thing. It's the next thing. Yes. And that you can make the whole journey doing the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Mm -hmm. And and part of what I'm thinking about that I, I want to put into the world and particularly offer to you. Have you read David White, W H Y T E. He's a poet and a, writer, probably about my age, maybe. His name's very familiar. All right. Well, get the book Consolations. Okay. And look up maturity. Like Consolations is just this little book with words at the top of each page. And then he talks about that word for a while. Okay. 
and I keep it on our altar at home and I'll read a word a day and I'm reading along and reading along and I'm thinking, all right, I've like, oh, maturity. Great. Cause that one won't be so hard for me. I'm, I'm getting that right. <laughs> and he says maturity is being able to hold the past and the present and the future all at the same time. And about five minutes ago, you talked about that brilliantly, literally brilliantly in terms of how you use all three in relationship to making decisions, which I think because we each, in terms of orientation to time on the Enneagram, we each have one orientation. We're not inclined to try to hold all three in decision making. Mm. All right. I want to keep going because I'm going to run out of time and I'm not going to get to do all the titles that I wanted to. I think chapter 14 is particularly important for sixes on the Enneagram, but I'd like for you to talk about stop calling gurus. Oh yeah. Stop collecting gurus. Well, that was at a, I realized I was, I was um, building my collection of gurus during a particular time in my life when I was searching for some answers And I couldn't, I didn't draw that line until I was, I checked my email one day and I was like, I need to clean out my inbox. And then I looked at all my email and I had so many messages from all these different, I call them gurus, but they're really just teachers of all these different walks, areas of life. I had someone teaching me about my house, about my organization. I had (laughs) taken a class on how to dress for my body type, how to my curly hair. So many different online classes and a little quiz and a little, I mean, so many things that on a, Taken one by itself, fantastic, great, fun. But I, Suzanne, I'm not kidding you. I think I had between 15 and 20 different uh, little teachers, marketing, all these different things in my email inbox. I started labeling them and then I just had to quit. And I was like, I'm never going to go back and read all this. Right. And I, I, but what that did was I said, I paused and I thought, okay, what is the narrative here? The narrative is Emily is in a time of, of a little bit of vocational Uh, decisions I had to make a little bit of confusion and cloudiness. And what I had not realized until that moment that I had been doing was um, I had been leaning on the assurance, leaning on the certainty of others in their fields of expertise because I was feeling uncertain in my own. And so I was starting to try to, uh, and didn't even realize it, but collect these people who were saying sure things in all these different areas of my life, because there was such a huge area of my life that had a big question mark. And I think we, maybe everybody does that to an extent, maybe not so crazily as I did with my email inbox. But I think if we pay attention to the books we're reading and collecting, the websites we visit, the people we follow on social media, the shows that we watch, the news that we consume, there are so many areas where we collect gurus. Um, And again, not a thing wrong with any of those teachers, but it was the amount of them. And the questions I have to start to ask myself are, do I need this many? Can I possibly learn from this many voices? Right. And, or is this maybe a time that I need to silence those voices so that I can begin to hear my own voice so that I can begin to allow my soul to come out like a wild animal. Everything has to be still in the forest for that animal to come out, but I'm keeping it all loud with all these voices and all these teachers in order to try to gain some bit of surety from them that I didn't even realize I was doing. And so I think that idea of, um, of leaning on the certainty of others in a place of uncertainty, recognizing that I'm doing it was a gift. Cause I could have gone on like that for quite some time, but 
the overwhelm that it brought me, I think I was glad that I was able to see a little bit beneath that at the time and say, oh, I'm covering up for a, um, a lack of confidence in here. Mm -hmm. And let's give some space for that lack of confidence and see what might rise to the surface in that space, which is not super fun and can be kind of a scary place. But I think it was necessary for me to recognize the gurus I, I was collecting and to put a little bit of a pause on those voices for a while. You know, I, I think too, I realized, sorry, I wrote what I wrote instead of what you wrote, because I wrote, tell sixes to stop calling their gurus. So <laughs> it is, the title chapter is stop collecting gurus, but you got to collect them so you can call them. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, the thing that I'm aware of is that those gurus all have their own perspective and their own narrative, and it doesn't necessarily fit yours. That's right. And their way of seeing the world doesn't fit yours and what works for them might not necessarily work for you. And I think there's um, a responsibility that we all have, you and I and the people who do the kind of work we do, where it's our responsibility to leave space for you to respond as you, mm-hmm. not to set you up to respond to life as us. Yes. Right? Because you can't do it. It's like it's guaranteed failure if you think you can do that. And I think gurus can teach you. So I haven't, I did exactly what you did. I just did it probably a few years before you did it. But my method was I started to journal in the morning, which two or three things from the gurus I felt like could instruct me. And in that process, I figured out which gurus I could learn from. And it wasn't all of them. Some of them said things that didn't really fit me. Mm -hmm. And then I, I stopped writing down, but one a week, you know, if I wrote down one on Monday, I thought, all right, well, I'm not going to check you again till. So I'm down to three. And uh, to be honest, one of them is my mentor, Richard Rohr, who I've been listening to for most of my adult life. And sometimes I just block it for a while because I lose what I think. Yeah. Right. And I think, I think we, in following your lead here, I think we learn to discern in tiny ways rather than trying to discern the big thing all at one time. It feels to me like every chapter was, if you do this, it'll help you do the next right thing. If you do this, it'll help you do the next right thing. So the next one I want uh, you to talk with me about is uh, find a no mentor. It's such a funny phrase, right? It's not a, <laughs> it's not a title. Much, though. <laughs> Well, um, you know, as a four on the Enneagram, um, someone who is, uh, someone who I have found has been so helpful for me in my own life is my sister who is a five on the Enneagram and she has become for me, my no mentor. She has her own way of seeing the world and, um, her own, her own filter through which she makes decisions. Um, but when I find myself stuck and not knowing, like you said, Suzanne, what I want, um, so, cause some things I'm get invited to, or I'm allowed to, uh, you know, ask to do or decisions I need to make are very clear. And I don't need to call her for that because I have a very strong sense of what I want to do. Unfortunately, that is not always the case. And so I can start to spiral in that fear of regret 
or uh, all the options and I'm not quite sure what to do. So I will call her up. And we joked one time after many calls, you know, she's my sister. So we've talked for years and um, we, I, we realized a pattern that she was constantly helping me say no. Mm-hmm. And I realized, wow, I don't really need help to say yes, because when it's a yes, I know right away almost, mm-hmm. but I need help to say no. I need someone to remind me that um, it's okay if I have a hesitation, that it's okay if I can't meet a need or uh, show up in a way that others might expect. And so um, it's important, I think, for all of us to have someone in our life who can help us say no. And sometimes the gift of a no mentor is um, she'll help us say yes. Mm -hmm. But when she does that, then you really listen because um, she's someone who probably her default is a no because Mm -hmm. she's wanting to save her own energy. And, um, you know, she sees the world that way. Um, So I think it's important when you're looking for a no mentor in your life. And I think some people are like, well, I want a no mentor. How do I find that person? It's important that the person um, d- has not fallen, has does not believe the myth of your greatness, that they understand mm-hmm. the work that you're doing. They're, they love you and respect you, but they're not impressed by you because a no mentor needs to see the thing for what it really is beyond the mirrored balls and the fancy things that the quote unquote great opportunities always promise. Because rarely do rarely is anything really a great opportunity. You know, usually it's it's a job, it's a favor, it's a it's you know a choice. But you know, this myth of the great opportunity that I think some of us can fall into because we don't want to miss out. You know, there's there's some things to look at it in a way that's like, well, but what is this really for me in my life right now? So a no mentor can help me sort that stuff out. And really, what she does for me is um, she just asks some really great questions, Mm -hmm. and she reminds me of things I've said in the past that are difficult, that are hard. And she refuses to let me talk myself into something that I don't really want to do where there's a choice. Cause there's sometimes where we have to do stuff we don't want to do. And I would say the best way to find a no mentor is to be a no mentor for somebody else, because then you attract people who value that type of companionship, that type of perspective. Mm-hmm. And then you can start to be that for one another. So um, in, in the relation to that, I want to ask you, do you think some numbers need a yes mentor? Oh, I think they do. I think my, I think my sister needs a yes mentor. Right. And she's the five on the Enneagram. And I am that for her sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. I think I, I don't want to be supportive of people whose tendency it is to say no, to find somebody to help them say no. Right. right. Like, yes, we're in this together. <laughs> All right, I'm only going to have time for one more chapter, but I, before I go to that chapter, I would like to make a comment and of course, have you respond um, in relationship to the fact that um, I've been convinced for a long, long time that good discernment happens in community. Mm, yes. Here at our center, the Micah Center in Dallas, our byline is that Uh, this is a place for solitary work that can't be done alone. I love it. I do too. And I I believe in it. And one of the things that I'd like to tip my hat to, just another uh, positive about your book, is that you absolutely teach the reality of discernment in community. And it's a, a community that is different people at different times, which is very instructive and helpful for people, but it isn't relying on 
your own ability to get it right and see it straight, and know what to do every time. And I think that that uh, is between the lines in every chapter. Hmm. And I loved finding it there. And I thank you so much for putting it there. So with all of that, let me uh, ask you to close our time together by talking about the last chapter, which is Wait with Hope. Oh, yeah. You know, um, when we think about doing the next right thing, we often think about action. (laughs) But there are times when our next right thing is to wait. And uh, that can often be, when it comes to decision-making, uh, the the worst news because we don't like the power of that unmade decision mm-hmm. and it and that can cause us to enter into a space of having to uh, make peace with what we don't yet know and so the gift of having the gift of doing the next right thing and learning that the answer is to wait can be for me um, trusting that there sometimes waiting is can be a very active posture mm-hmm. and that there's a lot of growing that happens in the waiting. And when you think of it in terms of creation and of a, a plant or a, a growth, you know, there's a lot that happens in the darkness mm-hmm. before it ever reaches the light. And so sometimes my next right thing is to allow the darkness to do what the darkness does best. And that is to nourish, to strengthen and to hold and that those roots can go down deep. And a lot is happening in the space where as Crystal Wells, singer songwriter, Crystal Wells says a lot is happening in the space where it seems nothing is happening. Mm -hmm. And so in that space of waiting, um, a lot can be learned even when it looks like not a whole lot's happening. Right. So Emily, I loved your book. I loved what it offered to me, and I, um, I hope that it is um, an opportunity for you to talk about it with many, 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 many people because I think everything in the culture is counter to good discernment, mm-hmm. and we could avoid so much pain if we could learn to listen to the wise ones, and you certainly are that when it comes to this work. Thank you for spending part of your time with me. Oh, thank you, Suzanne. It's been such a gift.